is Hillary. I'm here with Zach. Hey. Welcome to Index for Continuance. Today we're going to talk to Allie Black, a writer, educator, administrator, and very impressively organized person so, in Cleveland. So impressively. I think the most organized person in Cleveland. I'm going to I'm just going to put that in for consideration to whoever whoever's in charge of that that stuff. Allie used to work with us at the Poetry Center, so we talk about that a little bit. We talk about her writing, um, her new nonprofit, Balance Point Studios, her youth program, and we'll get into all of it. So we just have a little intro because most of it is just, I think, a really beautiful conversation um, with Allie about her writing and educating and organizing. Yeah, it needs very little introduction. There's just a few things. Um, one is uh, we should probably tell you who Donald Black Jr. is. Uh, Donald is Allie's partner, a Cleveland-based photographer and visual artist with whom she collaborates quite frequently. So uh, we will be linking to Donald's work in the description for this episode, but just know when Donald comes up, that's who Donald is. Pretty easy. And then um, we talked to Allie a bit about a poetry write-out that she and Donald did as part of Literary Cleveland's Incubator Conference, which is one of the largest free writing conferences in the country. It's pretty rad. It's totally free. It happens here in the fall. We super recommend attending it. We are always there. Um, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and also we wanted to say, if you haven't listened to episode three of this podcast, um, I would recommend going back and um, hearing from Matt Weinkam and Michelle Smith of Literary Cleveland about this pretty incredible community literary organization that's here. So we just wanted to shout out Incubator and them. Absolutely. Yeah. And and um, and when we talk about the ride out, you'll hear a number of, I think just a couple uh, Cleveland neighborhoods mentioned. Uh, so if there, if at any point you hear, uh, you hear a phrase and from context, you would think, oh, it sounds like a place. I'm not sure where that is. It's in Cleveland. It's definitely in Cleveland. Uh, it's really close to us. Um, and don't worry about it. Oh, and if you haven't ridden your bike there or around Cleveland, um, I'm going to say you should do it. I've done it a lot. I enjoy it. Wear a helmet. Get some lights. Be safe. I just got my bike repaired. <gasps> yeah. It had had a flat tire since 2016. So Whoa. I'm getting ready. <laughs> and I'll see you out there. <laughs> Dang. <laughs> well, we'll go talk to Allie. Let's do it. Hello, welcome to Index for Continuance. This is Hillary. I'm here with Zach Peckham. Hey. And with Allie Black. Hello. Um, thanks so much for joining us, Allie. Um, Allie is a poet and essayist and fiction writer, educator, and leader, I would say, from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, she's the author of the poetry collection, If It Heals at All, from JCAR Press, which was a finalist for the Ohioana Book Award. And the three of us met while Allie was in the Neo-MFA program, where, full disclosure, she worked a little bit at the CSU Poetry Center in a part-time role. So that is how we all first intersected. And I wanted to kind of start off by asking you about your newest project, um, which is a creative writing program for teens called The Most Promising. Uh, and it's described on its website as, quote, a free, rigorous, year-long creative writing program for Northeast Ohio teens designed to cultivate confidence and self-expression, as well as increase literacy skills, end quote. And you've been working as an educator for youth and teens for over a decade, I believe it is. 
uh, and you launched this project in 2022. So I just, we'd love to hear more about the program and what inspired you to start it. Yeah, so the most fun thing is sort of like my little dream project. I wanted to work with students who are really serious about writing and who don't really have the space to, you know, sit down and talk to their peers who are interested in writing and a caring adult or coach or mentor who is also serious about writing and serious about working with young people who are, you know, who match that, that interest. And so um, when I finished my, my time at Westside Community House as the Youth Services Director for the Sisterhood Program, which is a program for girls, where we focused a lot on reading and writing, creative writing, um, I missed it. I missed that work and I missed working with the girls. And so, you know, there was no reason for me to cut myself out of the sort of deal and so I just decided to launch my own project. And that's sort of how the most promising came to be. Um, I think a lot about how I, as a student in middle school and high school, I didn't necessarily belong to a creative writing group or program. So, you know, I just thought, hey, why why not start something that I wish I would have had when I was growing up. Sorry for my dog barking. <laughs> so on this podcast, we end up um, thinking a lot about kind of how the structure of an organization affects um, or helps kind of realize its work. And then obviously a negative example limits its work. Um, and so I was curious just to talk to you about, you know, how you set up the most promising, especially because you've worked across a wide range of different like community and educational settings, including sisterhood, which you just mentioned, and and you know, in a number, I was just thinking of in one of your talks last year at the Literary Cleveland Incubator, um, you were talking about kind of the importance of specificity in, in approaching community work, the importance of knowing like who you want to connect with and how you're going to do it versus relying on some kind of vague umbrella idea of like, quote unquote, community. And so we we're just curious to hear more about how you kind of came up with the specific structure of the most promising, like how teaching and learning would work in the program, how to get the word out, you know, anything from sort of the big decisions to like little details that you found yourself thinking about. And also just like any wisdom you have looking back on your career about, you know, how, how do people create like a good working structure at a program and then kind of help it adapt and grow along the way? Yeah, so some of the specifics that I really paid attention to, I thought a lot about how in my, you know, previous roles, whether it was at Sisterhood or doing um, work as an independent contracted artist and going into schools and going into other nonprofit out of school time settings, you know, I noticed that there are or that there were students who were there, but they weren't necessarily interested in creative writing, not necessarily interested in poetry. And so for the most promising, I wanted to select students who could make the commitment, who were serious, you know, who could demonstrate in their application that writing is something that they're really invested in and really interested in. And they want to make this commitment, which is 
for the most promising, not a huge chunk of time out of these teen schedules. They only meet twice a twice a month for two and a half hours. And then there's a little bit of homework or writing assignments outside of our time together. And then the other piece of it is that I decided for the most promising that while I am being compensated for my time, I feel that these are young emerging artists and they should be compensated for their time as well. And so the young people who participate, there's about 10 to 12 participants, ages 13 to 18, they all receive a stipend every six to eight weeks. So they receive a monetary stipend for their work. They get t-shirts, they get swag, they get a journal, they get a Kindle, they get free free books. Everything is free. And I think that is um, something that a lot of these other organizations aren't necessarily thinking about, uh, especially the piece about compensation. You know, I think we sort of see young people as, oh, they're out of school or, you know, this is their free time. So they want to do this and they don't, they're young, so they don't need to be paid. And I, I find myself thinking about, thinking about it in quite the opposite way, you know, because they are young and because they have decided to dedicate their time to something productive and positive, then they should absolutely be compensated and, you know, paid for their, for their work and for their time and dedication. I feel like the, like the explanation for why that would not be a priority among like other programs or other initiatives that are similar, like why that wouldn't even factor in to their maybe thinking about like, you know, there are so many programs that, that strive to do a similar thing, right? Like create space for like creative work for like intellectual projects. They might give like some, some resources, like material resources to support that, but not necessarily go as far as like a stipend. And I feel like the argument or maybe the logic would always be, we would always have something to do with, you know, just like, well, we can't, we can't, (laughs) you know? Um, And also we don't need to. And I wonder, uh, like specifically for the most promising, how, how are, how were you able to do that? Like how, how did you, how were you able to like, look at like fun, like sort of like funding options, uh, whatever in any form, um, if you care to talk about it and, and be able to say like, okay, like we, we're going to, we're going to offer a, an actual stipend on top of the other things that we're providing. So I, the most promising is very, very, very lucky in that I have a private donor who likes to remain anonymous, who funds the most promising. And this person, this donor is very generous and believes in the power of books and language and creative writing. And my answer is very simple um, because this person's answer to my ideas or, you know, the sort of line items that I've proposed for the most promising, like books and Kindles and stipends and, you know, swag, they are very much just like whatever you need, whatever you want. I'm for it because they had a parent who saw the value of literacy. And so they very much want to 
return the the favor of here's what literacy did for me. Here's why I'm successful. And so I support what you're doing. I follow I followed what you've been doing for years. And so I trust that, you know, what you want to, you know, allocate the funds to will will be beneficial to the students. So that's really how that has yeah. has worked out. That's really cool. That that's awesome. Um you know, I think it, it's interesting to see the the sort of blend all the time. Like, in, like we, you know, we we really like talking to, you know, different folks who are like working in this different parts of this kind of literary space about how they like the nuts and bolts of how they actually like make, make their thing viable um, for themselves and then like organizationally. And it's so interesting just to see the different sort of formulas, the different blends of kind of like um, like public and private you know, that kind of like a crowdfunded kind of approaches versus like going and actually applying for grants versus having just like a very entrepreneurial mindset. That's like, well, we're going to, we're just going to raise our own money. We're going to self-fund it. Um, you know, we're going to just try to like run it like a business. And obviously there are like incredible pros and cons to both of those. Right. Like, and, and I think, yeah, it's pretty amazing to, to be able to find a, a donor who's willing to, like to give you that and, and it allow you to also then have like the, the structural freedom. Right. Cause then you don't like, you don't have to go and like report to a foundation on that. Right. It's just like, so mission driven. Um, I guess I wonder for the most promising just to like get a, get a sense of, you know, the, like the, the things that you're doing, not just as like, we know you're an amazing writer, but as like, like an administrator, right. Like almost like a, a business person in a way um, like what are the, are there other funding sources that you're working with for the most promising? Like, like, did you, at any point, did you sort of uh, look at the possibility of applying for grants or uh, yeah, I just wonder how, if, how, how the rest of that funding structure works. And if um, there are certain priorities that you have that you're able to sort of act on, you know, in, in, in different ways or choices that you made about where you get your money from. Yeah. So um, in addition to the private donor, the most promising is also funded by a fund through the Cleveland Foundation, the Florence Crittenden Fund. And coming up in the in the near future, the most promising will, will sort of um, merge into my new project, which is Balance Point Studios, which is a new, it's a new nonprofit initiative that Donald and I um, have launched and we are officially a 501c3. And so the most promising will become a program of Balance Point Studios. And so, of course, you know, that is going to turn into me, you know, I'll be the founder, executive director of Balance Point Studios. And so the administrative work will increase significantly. Um, and But for right now, we do have the private donor and we do have um, funding from the Cleveland Foundation. And so like the reporting and that sort of admin work that I have to do, it doesn't feel new or it doesn't feel overwhelming or it doesn't feel frustrating because most most folks don't, maybe folks don't realize, but I've been in sort of working in the nonprofit sector now for over 25 years. So I know the work, the admin side, the facilitation side. And so it 
which is one of the reasons why Donald and I decided to start a nonprofit organization because we discovered that, you know, in this 20 plus year career, we've been working as artists and educators and administrators for other organizations, but yet we have our own ideas, we have our own projects that we want to facilitate. And so it just finally became the time to say, hey, we need to start our own projects. So so yeah, so the most promising will officially become a part of Balance Point, a program of Balance Point Studios, where it will receive traditional sort of fun- funding or, you know, grants from some of the, the local foundations, you know, and, and beyond. That's so awesome to hear. Congratulations. That's really yeah. exciting. <laughs> like, um, I'm, I'm psyched just to hear about it. And it, uh, you know, first I, I think it is, it's really brilliant to think of paying, um, the students for their involvement in the program, just thinking about the reality of kids' lives, you know, where if they're taking that time, they might be working during that time. Otherwise, you know, like, even informally. So you're helping them reserve that time, you know, to, to do this activity. Um, but also what you just said about Balance Point Studios, and thank you, segues perfectly into this question I wanted to ask you, which was about that, like 25 years of incredible, you know, experience that you have. You know, when I was writing that little bio to kind of introduce, to introduce you <laughs> at the top of the podcast, I had this problem I've had before, or which I come up against, I think a lot, which is like how to describe some of those skills, you know, like the skills that I think are like the most kind of essential and admirable in this field in kind of cultural work, nonprofit work, you know, whatever we want to call it and just literary work. Um, You know, we, we often call them like administrative skills or like organizational skills, which gets at it, but it's also, it's a kind of leadership that's often like a little bit invisible or people can't see that it's happening. They wouldn't like out from the outside, they wouldn't call it that or know to call it that, you know, I'm thinking about that ability to, to really organize and run something to be its organizational heart, you know, where you're both like the face of a program and you're also like all of its secret, like (laughs) organs and churnings, you know, like you're hosting things and you're also the person thinking about all the tiny but important details. You're sending the right emails at the right time. You're figuring out how to get a little more money for the part of the project that needs it and just being really like responsive. Um, And, you know, this podcast is about editing and publishing, or at least that was kind of the original idea of it. And when, when I think of like great editors or what that term means to me, like I'm not really thinking of people who worked on like super successful books. (laughs) I'm like thinking of, that way that people can talk thoughtfully to writers and readers across a bunch of different contexts that editors are like curious, you know, like they favor curiosity over their own egos. It's not really an ego driven profession. Well, I'm sure it is sometimes. I mean, I know I am sometimes, but like, and like, you know, they understand that a little, that a small issue matters, that like a word matters, that like something to do with how a book comes out matters. And, and it's also a way that people respond to a possibility, an idea that other people didn't spot, they didn't catch on to. So, you know, it's like, that work is like really big and it's like really little, you know, it's, it's like about being hyper-organized and like responsible and like unglamorous, <laughs> but it's also very imaginative and open-ended. Like you are, you know, like, like teaching is you're like, you have to sometimes just really sit back and listen and realize that a moment needs something new from you and you need to <laughs> like be open to that. So 
I, I just, I'm so curious to, um, hear from you about like your kind of experience of those skills and doing that work. And also, you know, I get really fascinated by how work like this, how it interacts with our writing, right. in the creative space, which they're, they're related. And this kind of organizational administrative work is totally needed for writing and art to exist in the world, but it's also like a different kind of work. Like it isn't, doesn't necessarily feel free and creative, you know, like it can feel like fussy. Um, so um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there and just um, <laughs> curious to hear you talk about your work as in that kind of organizational administrative, like leadership and, and what those skills kind of feel like to you. <laughs> like, Yeah. I'm somebody who is so organi- organized and someone who, like thrives when I have a project or an idea and I have to write things down and create deadlines and open up Microsoft Word and Excel and uh, map things out and make phone calls and schedule emails. And I mean, this is just how I've been working now, like I said, for over 20 years. And so my brain is sort of wired that way. And it does spill over into, into me as as an artist, as a writer, uh, in many ways, because I find that, you know, just like, for example, working on a new project, I, I'm, I often have multiple projects in mind at the same time. And so in order for those things not to get like mushed up in my brain, you know, I have to have folders and I have to, you know, create for myself, I create a schedule of, you know, okay, this is what I'm going to work on this novel that I've been working on. This is what I'm going to attend to some of these newer poems that are bubbling up because I'm thinking about X. Uh, This is the time that I'm going to dedicate to the most promising. Okay. And now I also have a full-time job that (laughs) I have to go to every day for eight hours a day that also involves being a leader, being an administrator, facilitating workshops with the students. So it is, it, it is just, it's just been the way that I have operated for a very long time. So it's sort of very instinctive and natural for me to kind of have these skills because this is, this is the only way I know. Whereas I look at, you know, some other artists that I may be uh, working with or talking with or uh, mentoring and they're quite the opposite. They don't have a full-time job. They don't have, um, you know, particular, specifically rather administrative skills or leadership skills. They, they strictly create, they strictly are in the space of like imagination and yet they're calling on me to help them stay organized, to help them, you know, how do you, how do I send this email or, you know, et cetera. So. Do you find for yourself that like when you do get, it's just so interesting to, to, to hear about like the, just like the tactics, right? And um, when you when you do get into that scheduled time of like, okay, here's, here's my time to actually work on poems. Um, do you find that it's, do you find it hard to like disengage from like the other stuff or do, do you, do you not see it as a separation? Like, does it feel like, do you feel like you have to kind of enter a different space or, or like, have this other mode or or no is it just kind of like if you create the time for it you can do it 
Yeah, I think, I mean, most of my, I, you know, for my fiction, the fiction work, the, the poems, the, the nonfiction, they all spill into me writing about the Black experience and pretty much like the Black experience from a Cleveland lens. And so oftentimes, if I am sort of dedicating, you know, this weekend, let's say, to I need to work on, I need to really try to finish a chapter in this novel that I'm, this young adult novel that I'm writing. I'll spend the time working on that young adult novel and things from that chapter may bubble up that spill into an essay that I'm writing about. And so I was sort of like, you know, kind of bookmark certain thoughts or certain topics or ideas that come up so that when it is time for me to, okay, now it's time to start working on, you know, this collection of essays, then I can kind of refer back to the note that I made while I was working on the the chapter in the young adult novel. So in my brain, everything is so very much organized and I'm very, for me, I feel very lucky that it's happened that way because, because I have so many ideas and so many projects happening all at the same time. I feel like if I wasn't organized and if I didn't have sort of like schedules to keep me intact for each project, I, I, I don't know what would happen. I, I just feel like I, my mind would just be a complete like tangled mess. That's that's really cool. I like I like how that maybe speaks to or like I don't know is like potentially a response to certain kinds of like writing wisdom or like literary wisdom <laughs> that feel really like unsatisfying <laughs> about how like I mean I don't know I I, I guess I feel kind of like I feel torn about it because like I do think that like I I do sort of believe that one enters like a certain state or like a some kind of alternative space, whether you like are maybe are aware of it or not, or like whether you try to or not, and often trying to negates the possibility of it even happening. But um, I think it's, I think it's really cool to think about, to have that sort of like more, what feels like a more like holistic intellectual and just sort of like temporal approach to like what, like what writing is, you know? And then I feel like, or I would, I don't know. I guess it just it kind of gives me like a little bit of hope, right? Because like we're all we're all struggling to like do the things that we want to do and like feel like we need to do that we believe in under in in the midst of like situations and structures that are like all the time preventing that from happening. <laughs> you know, like we have to like you're saying like have those like practical sort of tactics to to create the time for ourselves, um, you know, those strategies, but but that maybe there's something to that sort of larger, I don't know. I can't tell if it's a process that's happening above or below <laughs> the surface, but, um, but that it does all in some way, like kind of roll up, right? Like you are kind of making this, I don't know. I've been using a lot of like snowball analogies lately. Cause I feel like for some reason that works, <laughs> but, uh, but that's really cool. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Yeah, I'm fascinated by that. So thanks. You guys are making me think of, I think I wrote about this somewhere. So I'm going to have that like awkward feeling where you say something that, you know, you like wrote somewhere, but it's sort of about like a particularly chaotic time in, in my life where I wasn't really writing a lot. 
But every now and then I would have like a very powerful thought and I'd be like, I have to go write that. You know what I mean? Like I have to write this down and this is going to be sort of an important like truth or realization or, or, or something like um, artifact from this time. And I would go to write it down. And then sometimes the kind of exact same thought would be on the facing page of my journal. Like I'd done all this before, <laughs> like several weeks previously. And it was like very complimentary, but I didn't remember. And so I was like, I both writing was work. It was like, I was like, I was in some both success and failure at the same time where I was like, somehow the brain knew to keep coming back to that idea, but didn't even remember it. And it was ha- like its own, <laughs> like, like chaotic attempt at organization was like bubbling up in some way. Um, Ali, I was thinking, I love that answer too, because it started to speak to how you're a writer across multiple genres. And I, like, I always had a thought that you were probably working on multiple projects at the same time, or kind of like holding the relationships between different projects, you know, at the same time. Um, and, you know, what I find so fascinating about for myself writing across genres or for writers working across genres is that it means like really identifying what each genre can do right and like so shaping like the project according to those aims and like what that genre is so good at and then when there's another thought that's not going to quite fit there you can start to build another pro you know another project in another genre around that when i think of your work which is you know both poetry essays and fiction i sort of imagined that you you know the projects all talk to each other but they're ta- they're taking these very different forms each of which can hold like a different inquiry, I guess is, is how I often think of it, like a different set of questions that it's like looking at and, and work that it's, that it's trying to do. I had a question to kind of like maybe <laughs> dig into that a little bit and um, maybe ask you to talk about, uh, you know, what you just kind of summarized a lot of your work as being about um, the Black experience from a Cleveland lens. Um, and in your online bio, it says, you know, Ali Black is a writer from Cleveland, Ohio, you know, and so I was thinking about how both, you know, you've been writing and performing in Cleveland for 25 years, who knows, <laughs> I don't even, my, my math is always bad. <laughs> and you're also publishing like on a national level and platform, like you're publishing all over and your books are, you know, all over. So you're, you know, that, I, I was just curious about like that combination of activities, like being a writer from Cleveland can mean responding to and representing Cleveland to itself in different ways um, and across its multiple selves. And also it can mean representing Cleveland for a national audience or being part of these national conversations. And in both those sets of activities, right? Like a writer's access to an audience is mediated by different institutions, by like their preconceptions, their histories of racism and exclusion, like all of these things. And I was thinking about how you as a writer you know, also are like discovering and inventing your own pathways to your audience, as with the most promising, which kind of is inventing its own pathway to its work. And like two examples from your work I was thinking of is like, you know, just last weekend, you led a poetry ride out right through this through Cleveland, a tour that kind of stopped to view several murals by um, by your husband, Donald Black Jr. And so that's like, it's building new connections among a group of people on bikes together. They're experiencing public art. So they're helping kind of value public art, which is a way of like almost co-creating it. It's helping connect people interested in a poetry event with like kids who bike in the city. Maybe like they're, you're kind of building a little space there and those kids and their bike life. And I'm thinking about this um, essay you published a couple of years ago titled lessons learned and we'll like link to it so people can find it. And in that you wrote, quote, 
I should be somewhere writing an essay about the joys of publishing my first book of poetry, if it heals at all, and discussing how honored I am that a media company approached me to promote my work and discuss my practice as a writer. Instead, I'm here, here writing about how incapable Cleveland's white reporters are of representing Black artists, end quote. And the essay goes on to explore kind of a, a moment in that encounter. So that's like a big pile of thoughts, but I'm just thinking about how your task as a writer is sort of highly complex and you're approaching it in sort of multiple forms and projects simultaneously. Um, and that maybe has to do with like the task that you summarized of being, being a writer from Cleveland. Um, anyway, I'll stop there and just kind of ask you how you think about all that and how you see those questions take form across your work. Yes, yeah, really uh, great question or questions. And I, you know, it, hearing you um, talk about like a national level and the work being represented on a national level and, and all of that, I, you know, that feels very overwhelming to me because I don't, when I'm writing and when I am sort of sharing my work and um, thinking about the hope for my work, my audience or my sort of community that I am thinking about, and I don't mean this in a like a negative way, is but it's it's small, it's tight knit, it's close. It's like the folks that I am um, rooting for. It's you know what I always talk about, like the lowdown folks. It's people from uh, the southeast side of Cleveland. It's people who are, you know, family, the young folks around me. Um, and so, you know, when I when I think Cleveland, those are the people that I'm thinking about. And I'm thinking about the, the locations or the uh, businesses that I frequent or the places that I frequent a lot. Um, and so in my mind, you know, it's it's like this this world that I'm writing for is is very specific and um who I'm who I'm thinking about when I'm writing, it's very specific, it's very tight knit, it's very familiar. Um and so I don't I, I it, it your question also made me think about I be, what 2020 when I was approached by Literary Hub to write a response to the George Floyd murder and you know they were looking for you know ultimately different writers from across the nation to 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 write in response to that and because i had went to the protest that was downtown cleveland you know i had i had something to say right and i had sort of a response to going to the protest and I had sort of a lens to talk about what was how Cleveland was responding to what was happening, you know, in the nation. And still, even in that essay, you know, I think for me, if I if I were to think about it, if I would have approached writing that piece and thinking about Allie, you're the writer from Cleveland who has to represent Cleveland. I, I feel like I was just been so overwhelmed with sort of like pressure, but instead I focused more on you know, here's how that day looked. Here's how my mentee caught me up and said she was going. And so there was no way that I couldn't go. And, you know, this is what happened when we drove downtown. This is what happened when we got, when we got there and we saw the free stamp and the people and et cetera, et cetera. And so, um, so that's, that's that. And then the other piece is, 
you know, the bike ride that I just organized with Donald and in conjunction with Literary Cleveland and Balance Point Studios, this is going to sound so cheesy, but like that was literally a dream come true to to have folks who were from Cleveland. Most of the riders were from Cleveland. First of all, we rode on the most rainiest, you know, coldest summer day, uh, you know, because it is still summer here in Cleveland. Um, but it was rainy, it was cold, it was slippery, it was wet. But about 17 of us still made that dedication to come out and ride on the southeast side of Cleveland um, throughout the hood to look at Donald's murals and respond to them in a poetic way. And I just remember at one point in the ride, during the ride out, we were sort of getting close to Shaker Boulevard at, at about 116th and Shaker Boulevard. But we had, we were coming from like 142nd and Kinsman and we took like the back street. So we didn't, you know, we didn't take like the, the, the traditional route of going down Kinsman and then turning on to um, Shaker Boulevard. We went through these back streets, which means that we were like in some, some of the poorest, roughest parts of Cleveland, which, you know, is, is where I'm most comfortable, you know, but the riders were at some point, um, someone asked like, were we going the right way? And then at some point when we finally reached Shaker Boulevard, I heard someone riding next to me say, oh, thank God, this is where we are, right? <laughs> so it was like they were, you know, the, the, some of the writers I, I'm imagining were probably getting a little bit skeptical skeptical about where we were. But I thought, I thought it was fascinating that art and poetry could bring, you know, art and poetry by two Black Cleveland artists, two Native Cleveland artists could bring white writers um, who, from from what I could tell, were not familiar with the area, but bring them together in a way where they could see the city from a different lens. And they could be, you know, riding through these neighborhoods and not even realize that, um, you know, this is still Cleveland and this is the other part of Cleveland. You know, we so talk about how Cleveland has two sort of two two sides and um, there's there's one side of Cleveland and there's the other side of Cleveland. Well, I feel like, you know, we started off that bike ride at Shaker Heights Public Library and then we ended up riding throughout, you know, the southeast side of Cleveland and seeing you know, just seeing just a, a totally different side of Cleveland. And I feel like it was a dream come true because it was the way it was, it was, it was like poetry and art that brought that together. And um, so that's, a, that's, I maybe, maybe got off a little, little bit off track. No, but that's perfect. <laughs> ultimately, what I'm trying to say is that Cleveland, um, being a writer from Cleveland is really, really important. For me, I feel like Cleveland is a place where it is very much rooting for the losing team. <laughs> we are very much the undergrad, the underdog, um, excuse me. We are very much um, the most dangerous city. You know, we're very much the the least, the worst place for a Black woman to live. But, but yet I have this deep, 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 deep love for Cleveland and my my vision for my writing and for my work as 
an artist and as an educator and as um, a youth advocate and just a lover of like black people in art is to use my work to bring attention to Cleveland, um, to, to encourage people who are from Cleveland and who are artists and who are creatives and who are um, doing great things to stay in Cleveland um, so that we don't have so many people leaving Cleveland and, um, you know, so I could go on and on about that. Um, but that is, that is part of what Balance Point Studios is trying to do and why it exists. We want to create a space where um, folks who are, you know, interested and invested and who love Cleveland, we want to create a space for curious and creative minds um, to have a place to go and to have a place to stay. Awesome. Thank you. What a, it's a beautiful answer. I know it's like made my, all my thoughts come in a like tumble. Um, I was remembering some moment in teaching a few years ago when I had us all, including myself, kind of draw maps of like the city or our lot, you know, like where we went. Right. Um, and everyone's map is pretty circumscribed, right? There's routes that, that people go on, but every things beyond it are blank or are, you know, our daily routine ends up kind of very sort of narrow and limited in a way, or people are like, I go from here to here and here to here, but we're, but they were like, I don't know what's in this space. <laughs> like, um, right. And so we all kind of looked at that together. Um, I feel like I should credit, like, this is because we were reading this novel by China Miego called The City and the City. I feel like I should credit him for writing that book and <laughs> having us all do that. Um, <laughs> you know, wh when you're talking about that, I was like, you, you know, you're, you use poetry and art to kind of pull people like in a, in a physical geographical sense, in a sense of like place and the body and having an experience out into all these other roots and spaces uh, together. And the togetherness seems, seems really important in that. And maybe I can maybe I can transition from that to my next question, which so I was going to ask you about your collaborations with with Donald, whose murals you are looking at on the on the right out. Um, he's obviously he's both your husband. He's also like a celebrated photographer and artist. Now you're launching this new project together. I think it's it's really really exciting to see like two artists in this kind of close collaboration across media over years. Um, I don't. I don't think it's like terribly common, right? You know, um, to get to have that existing and, and to have that be part of the sort of lives and work of, of both artists in different ways. I just would be curious to hear you talk about your collaborations with Donald, how they've maybe shaped or affected your writing and, and any like thoughts you have about just like what makes for a good collaboration. Um, you know, that's a word that gets used quite a lot in, the small press world and the writing world, but it's often a bumpy ride, right? <laughs> like um, collaboration is a hard thing to do. So I, I'm curious to hear you talk about how you two have found these like modes and kind of practices of collaboration. Yeah, no, you're right. Collaboration is, um, is extremely hard and can be very hard. And I've been really, really lucky to have found an artist and friend and partner who uh, makes it very easy, honestly. And I think what I think one of the reasons why the work with Donald has been exciting and it it just works and it gels is because we have this place where 
we really, really focus on or we really prioritize honesty. And so I think that honesty is key in collaborating with someone. So, you know, for example, when Donald and I are working on something, we're very honest with each other. And I think that that is something that is unique and special because a lot of times artists, you know, there's this, there's like this, this thought of, or this caution of, well, I don't want to hurt someone's feelings. I don't want to tell them that, you know, this sucks or, you know, that's a bad idea or, you know, this isn't strong or this needs um, work or this is underdeveloped and people take offense to it. Um, people can't accept criticism, et cetera, et cetera. I think that what what's happening with Donald and I, we are very much very honest with each other and we trust each other. And we also have a vision that is so aligned that it is, it's just like, it's just magical really. Um, because I've never thought I would find one, um, a friend and a partner who has so many of the same interests, so many of the same goals, and uh, it has sort of the same vision for themselves as artists and for their city and for their family. And so I feel very lucky that that we found each other because I have been in so many different spaces with different artists who have, you know, I mean, just quite honestly, like I remember, you know, early 2000s, um, before I met Donald, I was like, in these collaborations with artists who were, you know, looking to sort of like steal my ideas, who were looking to um, get involved with me romantically, who were looking to, you know, take advantage of some of the like the financial gain that I was making, take advantage of the exposure that I was receiving. And it was just like sick and toxic and really, really dangerous. And so, you know, for one, I think, to really have a successful collaboration, folks, everybody at the table has to be honest. And I think people have to be, one, especially honest with why they're at the table and what the vision and the goal is for whatever it is that they're, that they're working on. And it takes, it takes time. And I think, you, you know, you're going to have to, unfortunately, go through several projects or several, you know, chances and mistakes to, to see like who, who you can trust, who aligns with what you're doing, um, who's on the same page, who's on the same path. It all, it all starts there. It all starts there. But I've been, I've been really, really, really lucky. I mean, because this, this work that I do with Donald, it never turns off. It never turns off. We're constantly thinking about, our projects, uh, we're constantly thinking about our city, we're constantly thinking about how to improve as artists, how to stay healthy as artists. It, it just it just never stops. And I think um, that that is where our vision aligns. This, this work as an artist, or this life as an artist is, it, it's what we do. It, it doesn't stop. It's not like an act. It's not something we're doing in our spare time. I think that's so, um like such a good point to say like that the honesty is not just about like when you're at the table, right? That's very important to be honest. And a lot of collaborations don't achieve that, but also about why you're there, right? And that that in itself, I think would illuminate a lot of the reasons that collaborations don't fall through, as you said, right? Like, which is that people are in fact there for different reasons. 
or we say we're there for one reason, but really from our actions, we seem to be there for a different reason, you know, <laughs> like, so I think that, yeah, is a great kind of key thing to look at in modeling them. Yeah. Also, it's just like, it's great. It's great to hear about it, about all of that, you know, and I'm happy that you guys are embarking on a new project. Um, I have an, I have another question, although I don't know, Zach, if you, you're welcome to, to dive in. Oh, I was going to say something like really dumb about how like, oh yeah, balance point. <laughs> cool. Seems like a, exactly. a phrase that, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, no, my, you know, my contributions are um, often, you know, surface level at best. No, let's, let's keep going. This is great. Well, Ali, I wanted to ask you um, like a little bit more of a writing question, which is it's like not fair to the audience because it has to do with your your poetry manuscript, The Cost, which I got to read and draft, um, which I know some poems are out there, but not all of them are out there. But I've been thinking a lot about how in that manuscript, I mean, many aspects of it, but but one in which you're sort of like the ways in which you're responding to and incorporating aspects of like our, our technological lives, I think is really striking. Like there's the, the poems where comments on YouTube videos are kind of part of how the poem works. And, and we can see how like women and girls like gather and talk to each other in sites like that and like form ideas and values around celebrities and their images. And that's something that the poem kind of like manifests or like thinks about. And I was thinking about how like, as a culture, we always put so much weight on the youth to like understand technology as though they would have some like special like insight into it. Um, but also like, then I was like, oh, you, you know, because you're working with youth and teens, you have like a front row seat, both to like how they use technology and how like we expect them, you know, like what it is we maybe expect them to be able to do with it or, or, or have some relationship with it. And there is a way, I guess I'm just, I was curious to think about like, you're a poet, which is like such a, it's an ancient form, right? Like it's such a kind of ancient thing to do. You're doing it in like very contemporary, innovative ways. Um, you're also like publishing books, which are this like older technology, you know, at the same time, your poetry, like I think is, is really responding to that online world um, and that, that world of, you know, different forms of media and ways that people understand themselves in its terms. Um, and when I think of your poems, you know, like they're often attending to these like really precise and vivid interpersonal moments um, that are so like clear and crystallized in the poem. But those moments might also happen through like texting or somehow through like a smartphone or a kind of interaction that's online. Um, so I was just kind of like mulling that over <laughs> and was curious to hear you talk about how you like approach poetry as like an ancient but flexible form, you know, in this, in this like very online world. Yeah, it is. It's very interesting because I, in writing the cost and writing that manuscript, it made me realize how much I am connected to social media and how often I am like reading comments and like sort of staying up on pop culture and world news uh, by way of my phone. And so it, it just becomes like, this stuff is like constantly on my mind. And I, I'm, I'm very sort of fortunate in that I have poetry to 
to communicate sort of like what I'm seeing, what I'm witnessing, what I'm reading, what I'm gathering from what's happening, you know, with Rihanna or what's happening with Beyonce or Cash Dow or, um, you know, some of these other celebrity figures. Um, and I can put it into a poem. And so I feel like it's, it's really, really interesting. And then on the, the other side, like you, you were kind of getting into something that I was like, oh God, please don't ask me about that. But it's this part about like how, you know, I'm a poet, which feels like a very, you know, old sort of concept and um, art form. And how can I sort of like utilize technology and social media? And I honestly have been like horrible at that. Like I am, I still write longhand. Um, I still, I, I, I don't really post, you know, on Twitter or Instagram or um, I don't have a TikTok. And, you know, to to bring Donald back into the mix, he's someone who is just like, really, really trying to encourage me to get out of that, you know, and to promote my work by way of social media and to, you know, because I'm somebody who's like, well, I can't post this poem because, you know, if I want to submit it on, you know, for a journal, they're like, if it appears online, then that doesn't count. And you're, you're disqualified and your work is no longer acceptable. And then I'm like, ah, you know, so it's very, very complicated to be in, to be entrenched in the world, in the social media technology world in that way. And then how it's, it's very, very, very interesting. And I'll say that just, you may ask me this later, but I just want to say it cause it's on the top of my mind, but I I'm, I'm writing a new book in addition to this young adult novel that I'm working on, I'm also working on this collection of essays that very much respond to a specific page um, on Instagram because I find myself like sort of obsessed with their posts and their comments, the, the comments that are, you know, underneath the post. So it's, it is, it's, it's very, very fascinating. Just like how my work as a poet, which is like, old and you know traditional is now merging with this new this new world it is so interesting uh, i love your your point about like it seems so silly that like you wouldn't be able to put like a poem on the internet like who cares but at the same time i don't know like i feel like we're um i, I think that's sort of problem right of like oh it's appeared online so now you can't submit it like it it speaks to this kind of like larger, I just feel like I've noticed and like, especially in these conversations, kind of like these larger problems that I think, especially in literature and how we sort of need to necessarily like quantify what we're doing all the time in ways that are like legible to the wider world. We have this like real problem with uh, like, professionalism sometimes because it's often the the sort of like rules of professionalism that are dictating like oh you can't put that on the internet and then also get it published in a respectable journal <laughs> you know and then there's i guess there's the the other like the flip side of that that's like well d doing that in itself is sort of like an unprofessional or, or casual activity but i but there are i think like instances or, 
of people doing that successfully. And there, I think there is like a wider interest in, I think like re-examining <laughs> those rules, but it also feels it, like you're saying, like if it, it feels really hard <laughs> to actually do or to like do well, I certainly, I don't know. I feel like, I mean, I certainly don't, don't, as much like I love your work, but I also don't begrudge you not sharing it more widely because like it it makes sense, you know what I mean? And like I think it's also important to like let your I don't know, to, to be intentional about the contexts in which your work appears, you know, especially if you you really care about it. I was thinking, um, this is like sort of obliquely related, but I was actually I was th- I was realizing while you were talking. I, I have assigned an Allie Black poem or essay in every class I've ever taught. I was I hadn't oh, realized wow. that until then, but it, it's very cool. Like either you know, either either um, in like a poetry class, right? Um, classes that are about like in our composition classes at, at CIA, like you know that that Queen of All Spaces essay, right? Like is one of the first things that that students see and. Um, I, I had a class that was like a, it was like a, it was about sort of like writing in response and like a phrasis. So like that, uh, was it like boy, the boy with balloon? Like, it's just like a really short, just like essay responding to one of, one of Donald's photos. But, uh, I, yeah, I, it's just an anecdote, wow. but I just, I, I realized as we were sitting here, like, oh yeah, <laughs> which not that I've been teaching for that long, but it just, I realized that like all these different classes that's happened at some point. Um, wow. And I think Thank it, you, Zach. No, totally. Yeah. I think it's more than like, obviously I, I want to compliment you, but also I think that it is, maybe this comes back to something about like the local or being able to like see, see things that the, the city within the city or like whatever's in front of you a little more clearly that like, you know, it, I think it is a really special thing that like we have, um, you know, we have this stuff happening in Cleveland that is like about, it's both about and more than, you know, about, you know, just where we're at. And um, I think there's like, it's, it's, to me, it's always like a no brainer to assign that work <laughs> because it is, there's often a, there's often a connection to the physical space that we are in when we're like having a class or reading for class or whatever. But then there is that, um, sort of like essayistic or like more like poetic, you know, connection to other ideas. And then, you know, the, the things that are happening on a, on a craft level as well. So I feel like that, that doesn't really apply to like thinking about the internet anymore, but, but just to say, like, I feel like, um, you know, if you're not promoting your own work, like other people are, so it's it's okay. Maybe that's well, it. Thank you for that. Thank you. I appreciate it. For sure. Yeah. It's... I was just, um, I can, I realized like, should you always tell someone when you teach their work? This is... Oh, I always do. <laughs> I know it's, I know it's a lot, but I just like, I, I can't tell if it's overwhelming. Cause I was thinking, Ali, I just taught one of your poems too. And, um, anyway, that, the one that ends, I don't have it in front of me, but the one that ends, I really was missing, um, that one I love so much anyway. And uh, students all wrote in response to that. So I was like, oh, I could have shared all that with you, but I didn't because sometimes it seems like overwhelming to like send things to people. Be like, here, um, you wrote this great poem once, so you have to like live with it now. Forever. Um, like, but I was thinking, you know, too, with 
of course, like, like the fundamental questions of like social media versus writing, you know, like, you know, writing is about the slowness. It, it is about um, the sort of layering of experience or, or accessing like part, like parts of like the, the dream world or the mind that aren't right there on the surface. Right. And it's about making these connections, like all of this slow work um, that just isn't what social media is, you know? And so when I think, you know, for example, Ali, those YouTube poems, I'm thinking about like, that's a different to witness the comments and like create, like come into a set of thoughts about what, what they're doing, like what's happening there. That's really different work than the work of writing the comment. You know what I mean? Like, they're both like part of something and they may be part of like a community or a conversation that's happening, but they're two different kinds of work. Um, and it's, I think it is, you know, while there are many writers who have some facility with social media and it seems like they found a voice or a way to use that space, it, it is a different, um, just a different kind of writing and a different kind of like thinking and reacting, I think then uses the part of things that's like, that's meant to be slower where you're like, okay, I'm going to share this thought because I thought about it for five years like, and now I'm ready, <laughs> you know, versus like a quick joke that I happen to think of that, you know, isn't that great or like a post where maybe I like shared something about myself. I didn't maybe want to share in the end, you know, like things like that, that just are I don't not, know. Not writing. Yeah. <laughs> Things are, that are not writing. <laughs> are a different thing. I, I mean, I guess that's just a long musing on, on social media. And, and it's weird to live in a time where professionalism actually means like being personal in a public way, like almost being like a little messy in a public way, you know, <laughs> when I think right. of a part of myself. Yeah. Like that's, straight, you know, like to be like, oh, if I can able to share something of my personal life, that's very curated and sort of professionalized into a form, then that will be professionally helpful or something. But it, that's strange, because, you know, traditionally, the word professional, but attached to like, us being less personal, <laughs> and like, putting on a suit and going and, you know, like, whatever. Um, I, I ran out of ideas about what a job is, I guess I was like, ah, putting on a suit. <laughs> um, it's just a I don't know. Like, yeah. <laughs> and it's weird to think I'm trying to attach this to a thought about small presses. And I think I, I can get there because I was thinking, okay, why doesn't a small press want to publish a poem that you've, sh that someone's shared on their social media? Like what is even the reason? And I guess yeah. the reason goes back to some idea about exclusivity or that the, the journal is curating, you know, and like, that's where you go to like, the Paris review or whatever, and you find what poems the Paris review has considered to be important. And that's like part of what they're offering. But if it's just on someone's social media, then it doesn't, it's like, they didn't put their kind of stamp on it, you know, and also like, you, so maybe people read it in a different way, or it's like, it, it's not really competition, because no one's like paying to read literary magazine. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, what is that? What, what is that exactly? And are we exploding beyond the point where we need that kind of editorial stamp or like curation, but also it's nice to be gathered in pages with other writers and like be there with them and like get to read yeah. their work that way. So I, I like, 
do you also love it? I don't know. Um, yeah, it's it's so complicated because everything you're saying is true. It's like, I understand it, but it also like really frustrates me because, you know, I have ideas of how I could promote and share my work with audiences um, via social media. But then I'm just like, oh, no, there's that rule that your work can't appear online. And, you know, and so that gets it gets really, really frustrating. But at the same time, I so appreciate the fact that uh, I may have to read a journal or go to a bookstore to read a new Jericho Brown poem or, you know, you know, one that 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 hasn't been shared, you know, via social media or so it's I don't know it's it is it is very very complicated and I don't really know like what to do about it <laughs> or you know what I, what I'm doing about it um you know I'm right now I'm just still in the space of I don't share you know work that I poems that I want to appear in a journal that I want to submit to a journal I just obviously I'm just not sharing it online but I very much would would love to. And then of course I'm with, I'm married to someone who was just like, fuck that, you know, <laughs> do what you want to do. And, <laughs> you know, this is, you know, he's very much into the world of technology and social, social media and taking advantage of the huge audience that I could gain if I did it right. But then that's the thing, like, how do you do it right? And that is a whole art in itself. And so, I just go back to opening my journal and writing. <laughs> no, it's that that makes total sense, and it it's so interesting. I'm realizing now, like it's so interesting to see the differences, like between different, even like literary sort of like genres or forms, like different attitudes toward like sharing stuff like that. Because, yeah, I think particularly in you know poetry or what we think of as like you know almost like intensely like literary kinds of like cultural production. We are like, we, we are pretty like guarded. Right. And like, I think interested in, I don't know, like the, the space in which those things appear, like not, not to say that other artists aren't, but it just, I think there are different attitudes that are, they're partly cultural and they're also, they also have something to do with like the medium itself. Like we were, we were talking to, you know, some folks last time who run, uh, they run like a small comics press. And I was realizing how common it is for uh, comics artists, like, you know, whatever graphic narrative, however you uh, categorize it, like to self-publish. And that's like, at least like a, a portion of their work so that they can share it. Right. And like, it's just, there's such a, I, I want to say it's maybe like a healthier attitude to that kind of like self-publication or like free sharing that in, you know, sort of in our world is like a huge no-no, right? It's like, oh, well, if you self-publish that, you might as well just put it in the trash because like no, now no one's going to touch it. I think there are things like, like there are kind of ideas to, to like model from other artists and, and other forms. And I, it, it occurs to me that like, there's maybe, and I don't know, but like maybe there's a maybe there's a workaround in collaboration, right? Like in creating like a, a manifestation of like one of your poems, right? That is not just it's not just like text on an Instagram square, right? It's some right. um, 
more sort of like you know like mo multimodal representation and then that that also gets around the the previous publication thing maybe i don't know right right maybe yeah. maybe yeah. i gotta think about it <laughs> right yeah it's pretty wild yeah i guess um maybe we'll ask you one more question and thank you for chatting with us at, at length because i'm just curious how all the like Maybe just to relate all of this to the question of sort of small presses. And I know, um, like, Allie, we had a class together about, like, editing and publishing stuff. Your first your first book came out on a small press, J.C.R. Press. Um, and also, you know, I was thinking about, like, we've ended up on this podcast kind of thinking about small presses as being often, like, outside New York, where all the big presses are, <laughs> like, doing different things in different places and being part you know, and we talk to a bunch of presses, so I won't like generalize as to, you know, but, but they're serving different sort of communities and visions and the place that they're from is really part of what they're doing a lot of the time. Um, and yeah, I was curious just to hear maybe your reflections on like, as a writer from Cleveland and thinking about the, the publishing landscape, um, what role like small and independent presses play for you as a writer and reader if that's a useful way to think about things. And, and to Zach's point, I was like, just thinking about like, like, yeah, like self-publishing is a huge history, right? Like, um, like that's like a really big, like a lot of writers have self-published or have gotten together and published each other because they were being excluded from like big publishing. And like, that's how their work was alive and circulated. And I think we were all working at the Poetry Center when the Poetry Center published that selected work of Russell Atkins, the the Cleveland poet and almost all of his, all of his books, I think had fallen out of print and mostly they were published by, by very tiny press, you know, they, they, so they circulated that way. Um, which is how, like, like how his career was, how his life as a poet was, I guess the downside is that you couldn't get them anymore unless someone found them all and tracked them down, you know? So like, they don't have the same longevity or just like literally as many physical copies as would exist from a big press, you know, like where there would just be a lot of copies that were out there. Um, and it would have, they would make it into more like scholars and critics hands. So they'd kind of be known about them. Right. So, you know, these are the sort of paradoxes of like the sort of freedom and aliveness of those smaller presses circulating his work versus the kind of like historical problem in which both like, people, not everybody like knew about them. And then later people couldn't find them because they were like a small, you know, um, they were circulating a different way. So yeah, I'm just, I'm just curious for your own, um, like as a writer and reader, how you think about kind of that landscape and where maybe small presses fall in it or what's exciting to you right now, I guess, as a writer and reader. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I love small presses. I think that they, are like tiny little places for people who are, I mean, from my experience, people who are at small presses, they are really, really, really like into supporting the artists, pouring into the artists, making sure that the, that everything is, is, uh, is, it's sort of right and that the artist feels comfortable and, and, and I'm speaking that I'm saying this because I'm speaking from experience and I don't know what it's like at a, at a bigger press, but I know for uh, my experience, 
at JCAR Press, like I had a say in almost like every decision. And I, I really love that. And I hope that for this next manuscript, wherever the book lands, if it lands anywhere at all, that I still have that sort of power and input. But I'm not sure if, you know, if it were to, you know, be published by a bigger press, you know, what, what happens to that? And then the flip side of the small press is that there's very, you know, in my experience with J. Carr Press, you know, there were only, I think a t- it's a two-person staff. And so that came with its complications and its issues. Um, but I feel like small presses are doing really, really powerful and creating very beautiful books. I, I, some of the some of my most favorite books are from presses that I like I never even heard of. Like Taylor, uh, I think her name is Taylor Bias. I just picked up a copy of her book. Um, I done clicked my heels three times. Um, and I think the press is Soft Skull Press, which I had never heard of, you know, and I'm not even sure how I came across her work and her book, but the book so far it's really, really good. And I really like the way it looks and feels. And um, so I'm all for uh, small press publications. And the time that I spent at the Poetry Center, I learned so much about, you know, what a book makeup should be, how to read a manuscript and how to talk about a new piece of work. And, you know, so I'm always going to be like very pro small press and cheering them on and wanting them to um, continue to do great work. And, you know, as far as like Cleveland, I, I'm not really, I'm not really following like what's happening in the sort of publishing industry of Cleveland. I know, I, I know of a, a few people who are doing some things that would be a dream of, of mine for Balance Point Studios to sort of like long term sort of tap into that world some some way somehow but you know who knows but I you know I, I appreciate small presses is what I'm gonna say and I and I love the work that they do and I'm so happy that I came across J. Carr Press because I still have a um, very lively uh, relationship with my publisher and I'm not sure that that would happen if I'm not sure what it would have turned out to be if that didn't happen that way. You know what I mean? So I'm I'm just, I'm not sure, but, but yeah. We would love it if you guys started a press. That would be a dream, like circling back to like these dream come true <laughs> ideas and realities. I, that would be incredible. <laughs> We're, I feel like we're often encouraging people to make poor decisions and start <laughs> <laughs> But I, yes, I, I'll, I'll buy all your books. Yeah.